I viewed success as being on the other side of a, a brick wall. And so I had no reason to charge full speed at a brick wall. I already knew that I wasn't in a high paying job. There was no fast lane in teaching that was going to make me millions of dollars or turn me into a millionaire until, you know, we bought this duplex and it quote unquote worked. And it felt like somebody pushed a brick out of the brick wall and a beam of sunlight shot through and hit me in the eyes. And I was like, I think I can get through there. Mm. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the show. Today's guest, Bryce Stewart, is a GoBundance member. He's a real estate investor, former teacher, and author of The House Hacker's Guide to the Galaxy. You can hear his Bigger Pockets episodes, I believe two of them now, one of which, I don't know where it still lands, but it's one of the top five or ten ever, ever listened to. So, Bryce, welcome. I believe that's true, and thank you. Yeah, what's the, what's the number? Do you know? Uh, like what places it come yeah, in? Yeah, yeah. It was top ten when they asked me to come on again. Still? Um, yeah. Do you know what the highest was? What the highest rated one yeah, was? Yeah. No, 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 no. Do you know what your highest? Were you? No, like, I don't. Number three or number six? I'm not sure. Here's what I do know. Uh, when you come in, come on and say that you're not very smart and you manage to figure some stuff out, it tends to appeal to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Well, I said the same thing, but I didn't get your listenership. Uh, yeah. so I think you did something a little bit more than that. Yeah, and I have a great story. You do have a great story. So let's start with that. What's the backstory? Where are you from? Give us kind of a, the ascension from, I mentioned teacher, all the way to real estate investor. Give us that background. Absolutely. So uh, I came out of college as a, a elementary school teacher. Um, I had a chance encounter when I was, before I even started as, with a teaching job, chance encounter with a coworker who at the time, I was 23 years old, I was living with my parents still in my high school bedroom um, because I didn't have a place yet after finishing college. My dad was charging me $300 a month to live in my high school bedroom because I had a degree yeah. and a job and that's the kind of guy he is. Um, <laughs> and so I was working with another 23 year old who asked me, where do you live? And I'm like, I live with my parents. And I'm like, where do you live? And he goes, my college roommate and I bought a four-unit apartment building in Norristown, Pennsylvania. I'm from Westchester, so just outside of Philly. And I, he said, we roomed together in one of the units, and we rent the other three out. And I literally did not understand what he was saying. Right. I thought only big companies owned apartment buildings. I had never met, like, an actual person. Even in co I went to a college that was a four-year dormitory housing, so I didn't even, like, rent an apartment right, while right. I was in college. So I asked him, I'm like, well, isn't that like a, a high mortgage or something like that? He's like, well, it's not low, but we pay the mortgage with the rents from the other three apartments. And I'm like, what about real estate taxes and like insurance and stuff? He's like, yeah, we pay it with the, other, with the rents from the other three units. And I'm, in my mind, I'm like, I got to poke some hole. Like, this can't be right. Right, right, right. So I'm like, I bet the water bill's really high or the electric. He's like, dude, no, the each He's like, I don't know what their bill is because they have in their own meters uh, with the public utility companies. He's like, but honestly, we pay our bill with the rents that we get. And I was like, I can't believe that. You're living there for free. I'm paying $300 a month to live in my high school bedroom. Yeah. That's insane. And the guy's like, actually, we also get $200 of spending money out of the place every month. <laughs> so I was mad when I heard that because prior to that, I, I, I legit did not understand people could make money from something besides their job. Mm. I just thought wealthy people were like doctors, lawyers, whatever else. CEOs, right? Yeah. Get a job and go all the way exactly. up. Exactly. Sure. And at the time, too, I had convinced myself, um, or I, I was convinced that my 19-year-old self, who had chosen elementary education as a major, that that had etched my economic destiny in granite for the rest of my life. Wow. 
you know, okay, that was my major. I can't change it now. I'm not going to go back through college. Um, I'm, I'm, I already have a degree. This is my fate. Yeah. And so I really just kind of closed my mind down after that. Crazy. Yeah. So fast forward a couple of years later, that was like a seed in the back of my brain that uh, I didn't do anything with because people don't just walk up to you and offer you a four-unit apartment right. building. The real estate to buy, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So a few years later, I was teaching. Um, I had a teaching degree. Uh, my wife and I had two kids very quickly uh, in 13 months. And we went from um, two salaries and two mouths to feed to very quickly uh, four mouths to feed on one salary. Mm. And that salary is a teacher's salary. So I was like, I got to do something. So I I grabbed a page out of that guy's book. I randomly saw a duplex for sale. This was 2009. Um, I called the agent. We went to see it. It sucked. Um, But we got on an auto email list and like in the next month, uh, she sent us a great one, which was our first uh, first deal. How'd you buy it? How'd you how'd you fund it? Given that you're on one salary for yeah. months of being a teacher. So salary. it was an uh, it was a hundred seventy five thousand dollar duplex. Um, it was in really good shape. The guy we bought it from had bought it sheriff sale, had lived in it, gutted it, like knocked out the walls, exposed the brick wall, put in tongue and groove hardwood floors, wow. open concept. Yeah. So it was a really nice apartment on the second and third floor, and then the first floor was a one bedroom apartment. Hmm. So FHA, I think we had $6,000 that we had scraped together, and we probably borrowed the last two or three to close from my in-laws. But um, this was the lesson in it. And on some level, this is actually the lesson in every level of real estate, which was I did the math on the principal interest, taxes, and insurance. It was $1,200 a month. And then the rent downstairs was $600 a month. Mm. And at the time, we were renting for like eight fifty. dollars So... You're ahead. Yeah. P-I-T-I, 1200 rent, 600 I was like, okay, we can't afford to not buy this duplex. Right. right. So it was a big, a, a lot of your people who are listening to this, they already know that. That's like, you know, the, the, these are Duplos to them, um, not overly granular. But I think for everybody who's listening, there's a point, unless they're wildly different than me, I had that static mindset, okay, I'm a teacher. That's my, my economic fate. Uh, my parents were both uh, financially responsible, but not entrepreneurial. So they were responsible with money, but not ambitious with it. I viewed success as being on the other side of a of a brick wall, really. And, and so I had no reason to charge full speed at a brick wall. No reason to work my butt off toward it. I already knew that I wasn't in a high-paying job. There was no fast lane in teaching that was going to make me millions of dollars or turn me into a millionaire. I think a lot of people, a lot of Americans at least, are in that spot where they've convinced themselves some people are successful. Mm-hmm. It's random. They're well-connected. They're lucky. They're lucky. Sure. You know, they invented the chip clip or some other, you know, one in a million thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they convince themselves it's not worth some great heroic effort um, until, you know, we bought this duplex and it, quote-unquote, worked. A year later, we refinanced the payment went down to 1100 and we re-rented the apartment that went up to 800 Wow. So now our kick-in was $300 a month for a really a gorgeous apartment. Yeah. And that, Jamie, that was the first time that, like, something worked for me to compensate me outside of, you know, just a job that I was working. Mm. And it felt like somebody pushed a brick out of the brick wall and a beam of sunlight shot through and hit me in the eyes, and I was like... I think I can get through there. Mm. 
I think it's worth a great a heroic effort to try this because I, I have evidence here, a taste of, of some degree of success. And honestly, I was, I'm not type A. I'm not an overly hard worker. I don't think I was a very good employee. Um, no record of really hard work prior to that in my life. Mm. But when I saw, here are levers that I can pull, here are things that I can affect, um, and I, you know, it, it improves my financial condition, that motivated me to really work hard to get through to the other side. And then I started you know, picking off more bricks. Now the light's bigger. Yeah. Um, and you get momentum with it, and you become convinced, oh, this actually is possible. But um, uh, maybe a good um, analog would be, um, I read a statistic one time that said if there's a, in urban areas, if a kid from a neighborhood uh, becomes a professional athlete, the chances of another kid from that same neighborhood becoming a professional athlete goes up by fivefold. Oh, really? I was going to say it goes down. That's interesting. Goes yeah, up. Because yeah. now the kid in that neighborhood has seen what it takes to get to the success. Just normalized it. Right? They're like, okay, I watched him do the hard work. He made it. That makes more sense. It's possible it. for me yeah. to do it. So on some level, I think for success, you, you have to experience just a, a taste of it or, or see, let's say, um, a good example close at hand to you. Like so-and-so is not that smart. They managed to do X, Y, and yeah. Z. I guess if I'm willing to put in the work, I can get to the same level. So maybe it was some of that for me, but that's what motivated a guy who would have probably just stayed in the job that he was in um, doing, you know, stuff that ultimately wasn't as... Did you end up, as you grew your portfolio, uh, you know, what you did was house hacking, essentially. Did you continue to do that, or were the next properties you purchased more, you know, you purchased them as yeah. investment properties? So for people who aren't in it um, yet, maybe you're looking to grow your wealth or something like that. I still think an owner-occupant, a small multifamily owner-occupant house hack is hands down the, the best investment available to the common person. 100% it is. If you think, if you dial into what we did, we used seven, $8,000 um, of, of cash yep. to control an asset that was worth multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yep. Um, we were the sole recipients of any appreciation on that asset. So, you know, let's say it goes up by 3% per year. It takes two and a half years for just the appreciation to pay us back on yep. it. Um, in the meantime, it lowered our cost of living because, like I said, we, our kick-in for the uh, PITI was so low. Um, and then the tax advantages of it, um, a lot of times when you grow a portfolio like this, um, there's not, not income tax due on, what, on the rents that you're getting in because a lot of it is washed out by something that's called depreciation. Sure. Um, people who are in it already know this. People who aren't yet don't conceive of it. But a good rule of thumb would be this. Uh, $10,000 in rental income in terms of what ends up in your pocket at the end of the year is worth about sixteen dollars or $17,000 in salary income. Makes sense. Yeah. So um, That makes sense, right? When you consider depreciation. Exactly. Even, yeah, gotcha. Or when you consider what ends up in your pocket. Right, right, right. So um, people have asked me, more, um, you know, what do you make as a real estate investor? And I know that if I tell them how much money I make in terms of cash flow, they're going to think of it as a comparison to like a salary. Right. So let's say I'm banking a quarter million a year in net cash flows. Yeah. People think of that as like having a quarter million dollar a year job. It's not. Right. It's actually like, like having a $350,000 per year job. Yeah. Uncle Sam taking a hundred grand out of your pocket yeah. and then you walk away with 250 grand. Yeah. That's the magic of real estate as a, a wealth growing vehicle. Um, 
And, and specifically the way we started house hacking, that's why an FHA loan or a VA loan or a low down payment loan on an owner-occupant place, it's, it's magic. You can't do it with any other asset class available to the common man. It's a government-subsidized low down payment program allowing you to control what will ultimately be functionally an investment-grade asset. Yeah. So in retrospect, I see that. At the time, I was just trying to keep my nose above sure, water. Sure, sure. But, so how many times did you house hack then? So we had a condo that stunk that we bought, lived in. Um, it ended up, we ended up being underwater on it, which is why we were in uh, dire straits when we bought this duplex. Um, we lived in that for two and a half or three years, had another kid there. So we had three kids while we were there. I bought the place next door, or I got the place next door under agreement. It was a three unit that was a crap hole. Um, but I figured actually buying it was... Uh, protective because I already owned the place next door. It would increase the value of both if I was able to control it. Um, And looked at it and realized, okay, if we stay where we are, because this is a really nice apartment, um, if we stay where we are and try to buy this place, we're going to need a bigger down payment because the bank will only give the low down payment programs if you're actually an Mm owner-occupant. So um, it makes sense if you're in this stage of life or trying to do it, be ready, willing, and able to utilize your status as an owner-occupant to, to, to rinse, lather, and repeat a couple of times. Um, and for me, that was the condo, which lost us money, a duplex, which I told you that the PITI ended up being 11. Um, first floor was maybe bringing in 1,800 or 800. Second floor, when we moved out, 1,400. So mm-hmm. that's 22 and paying 11. Yeah. So when we moved out of that duplex, we were net cash flowing $1,100 a month. I opted to move us into the three unit right next door so that we could get owner-occupant financing on that property as well and not have to pay as big of a, of sure. a down payment because I really hadn't saved up enough to do that. So we did that, lived in it. Um, I spent a year of, this is where the, uh, the ray of sunshine was coming through the brick wall. That year when we bought this place, it needed a lot of work. So uh, between me and a contractor, we finished the two-bedroom apartment on the first floor. I moved my family into that two-bedroom apartment, which was smaller than the one that we moved out of. We crammed all three of our kids into, a, into one bedroom with, like, cribs and bunk beds. And uh, I was teaching, and um, every morning getting up at 6 a.m., going in, doing plans, teaching for a day, coaching cross-country, coming home, dinner at 5, get the kids to bed by 8, and then from 8 until, like, 1 in the morning, I was going up and working on the other two units. Yeah. And then... Waking up at 6 o'clock, doing it all over again. How was your wife with these moves? Was she begrudging or was she sort of, nah, hey, we got to do it? She was a little begrudging to begin with. Um, She bought into the plan as she started to see some of the numbers change. But really, the the move to the triplex where we're moving into smaller space, the risk was all mine. The potential blame was all mine. Potential, full blame. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) This doesn't go well. It's on me. Yeah. But I word, but but I true. said if I'm you know if I'm looking at these numbers right and it does go well, I promise we can buy a normal house after this and you know we, you know give me one more exactly give me one more Got so it. we did that for a year and then the three unit cash flowed when we moved out about seventeen or eighteen hundred so when we moved out of those wow that's after debt yeah that's with everything exactly wow wow we were able to now here's the thing we borrowed money from family to renovate sure. Then we were able to get a higher appraisal after a year and refinance while we, this is important, we refinanced while we lived there 
with owner occupant debt again mm-hmm. because that's sweetheart financing. Yep. It was like 3% on a 30 year fix. Um, had we waited until we moved out to try to refinance that triplex, well, now you don't, you don't have that same owner-occupant financing. Yep. So by the time it was all said and done, we were looking for a normal single detached home and cash flowing three grand from this portfolio of five units um, and losing $300 a month from the bad condo that we yeah. had. But I went and bought a, the, the smallest house that could accommodate my family. We had our fourth daughter kind of in the transition. We bought a three-bedroom house because I have four daughters. Sure. So two, two uh, same-gender kids per bed, bedroom. Yeah, makes sense. And that was like 1500 all-in, P-I-T-I. Mm. So you look at it. I was taking in three grand extra a month, still a teacher. Um, 1500 of that went to a house. But now we're living in that house for free. Mm-hmm because it's paid for by the net profits, and taking another 1500 Remember, this is after tax sure. or tax-free money. Tax-free money, yeah. So um, it, was, it felt like, okay, I'm, my job is that I'm a, a sixth-grade teacher, but I, we can kind of live like I'm a, an attorney or something. Right, right, right. Maybe yeah. not a very successful attorney. Well, I get you. Yeah. <laughs> you know? You're living for free on the biggest expense that we think about, yeah, our home. Right, right exactly. Yeah. So what, how, what's your, flash forward, what's your portfolio size today? So uh, today I have... I mean, my portfolio probably is five and a half million, I'd say. It's across 37 doors. How long did it take you to go from door one to door 37? Um, so 2009 was the duplex. Yeah. I retired from my W-2 in 2015. I'll ask about that next, but go ahead, yeah. That was cash flows then were about um, just shy of 10 grand. Okay. 2015. And then um, had to learn how to do non-owner-occupant creative financing with all the deals after that because we weren't going to move our kids back into sure. like a multifamily. So probably doubled or tripled the portfolio between 2015 and today. Wow. Um, weird things that you learn, pick up on, snippets that you hear um, here and there, stuff you figure out how to do, um, horse sense that develops when you're buying stuff. I've renovated substantially. All of this is pretty heavy value add. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where I live, has been a pretty good market for it. Um, you know, I, I did not orchestrate a really good market. That just luck of the draw. That's yeah. where I lived. I also didn't orchestrate the best decade in the history of the world to borrow <laughs> money. Um, we all kind of just fell into that one. True, true. You know? yeah. Um, and Bethlehem had and still mostly has a pretty good uh, purchase price to to rental ratio, uh, ratio yeah, yeah. for uh, landlords. 2015, you left the job. Was that an emotional decision in any way for you, or was it just simply a numbers thing? Once I hit X, then it makes sense for yeah, me to well, do Well, it. it was both. Yeah. Um, the job was taxing. Um, you know, teachers work about 50 hours a week yeah. um, if they're doing, you know, work outside of school. And I just realized, you know, I'm raising other people's kids. It's taken time away from me raising my own kids. Um and the, okay, so the ray of light shining through the, the brick wall, it, it quote unquote worked for me, to, for the first duplex, the triplex, that those allowed my wife to uh, step away from her job, which was my initial goal, and plus survival. Sure. Um, you know, <laughs> got, got this home. And, and to me, it was like, okay, that worked. I didn't think it was going to work. It did work. Yeah. Um, and then I'm like, well, maybe if I was able to retire my wife from her job, you know, a couple more doors here and there. Um, I could 
you know, step away from my own job. Yeah. So yeah, it, the emotional part was that teaching is difficult. I'm so glad I was not a teacher during COVID. Sure. Um, my wife and I, <laughs> gosh, we sent in letters, notes, uh, boxes of tissues, hand sanitizer, uh, gift cards, everything we could think of to our daughter's uh, teachers. Yeah, 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 when they were, because we, I just knew it so hard. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's some creative stuff that came after that stuff. I had to figure out kind of on my own. I don't have any partners aside from my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the the mindset shift was one of fixed static mindset. Um, you know, economic fate being etched by either family of origin or by college major or you know, let's we'll say career experience. Having that shell broken and realizing there is a way I can work towards this. Mm experiencing some small successes, that having a snowball effect on my own motivation, like, okay, I'm really going to jump all in with this, jump in with both feet. Yeah. Um, human beings don't like futility. True. So if you tell somebody to just work hard for the sake of working hard, they're going to get tired of that after a while. Yeah. There needs to be a, a plateau. Um, otherwise, it's, do you know Sisyphus, the Greek uh, myth? I've heard the name. I've heard, he but was, I don't know anything about he it. He was cursed to like roll a boulder up a hill every day. And mm-hmm. then it was like rolled, had, it got rolled back at night. And the next day he had to do the same thing. And that was his like eternal. Oh, curse. I have heard that story. That's Sisyphus. Okay. Yeah, Sisyphus. I've heard the story and the name, exactly. but I hadn't put it together. Nobody yet. likes doing that. Right, right, right. It's futile. Yeah. So, but when you can see that there's a plateau, and if you, you know, pump your legs enough and push that boulder up to the plateau, there's a rest, there's a new level. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's other hills to push a boulder up, but at least you have progress that doesn't get snatched back from you. Yep. That's a huge motivator for people. Yeah. Um, so for me, it absolutely was. And again, it was sort of um, a big change in my mindset because I had, hadn't really experienced entrepreneurialism in my family of origin. Same, right. Yeah, I go through that same issue of, uh, of uh, am I really... Am I, can I really be an entrepreneur? Can I be on my own? Right. Can I, is that like, you know? Well, let me beat the term up a little bit. When before, I, I thought, I kind of always thought of entrepreneur as somebody who invented something new. True. You yeah, know, me like too. I, I had that at some that point. Category. And um, I'm going to say this, even uh, like creative, you think of creative people as coming up with a new idea and entrepreneur. Uh, that's true for both of them. But for people who struggle with identifying as that, I want to throw a different... Um, frisbee at you, which is entrepreneur is anybody who's self-responsible for their income, mm-hmm. regardless of if they're uh, doing something that's already been done, you know, a thousand times, which you and I are in real estate, yep. um, or if it's something completely creative um, or completely new. And then creative people too. I want to change that definition a little bit. We think of creative as, as thinking of something completely original. Mm. I, I don't think that's true. I think creative is that you're able to create things. So uh, a mason is creative, even if he's doing work that he learned as a trade, because he's taking, let's say, raw materials, which have no valuable usage, yeah. and he's converting them tangibly into something that he has created mm-hmm. that now has a viable economic purpose and use. Um, it took me a while to figure that out as I was doing renovations on properties and stuff that like, oh, wait a minute, I'm taking a place that is not attractive to people not worth the rent, you know, paying a lot of rent for. And making it so. I'm taking cabinets on the shelf at Lowe's, all this stuff that honestly it's worthless while it's on the cabinet at Lowe's. Yep. Um, And I'm taking labor because I had to hire labor here and there. 
putting it all together and I've created something that ha now has more value than all than the the sum of all of its parts. Sure. I'm going to call that creative. Yeah. And I never would have beforehand identified myself as being entrepreneurial or creative, but here I was figuring out pieces, methods, st strategies that already existed that people had already done, but bringing them together in the unique opportunity and circumstance that was in front of me and turning it into something valuable. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then being compensated for it. There's a terrific book um, on Amazon called Shop Class as Soulcraft. Okay. Uh, it's probably at this point maybe 10 years old. Written by a guy who was a PhD in economics from University of Chicago, which is like top three in the world or something. Um, he finished his PhD work and went to work for a, a think tank in D.C. Spent 18 months there and was like, I've had it with this crap. I quit. Yeah. And then he started a motorcycle repair shop. Mm. And uh, in his book, he talks about how, for him, troubleshooting a vintage motorcycle was far more intellectually rewarding than this supposedly like higher-level cognitive work that he was doing yeah, yeah. in this uh, think tank. Um, and thankfully, so he, his book is anecdotal about his own experience, but he also has the macroeconomic perspective of our economy, the labor markets, that kind of stuff. And he points out that we've underfunded trades, We've understaffed the trades. 100%. And well, we pay so much for them now. Exactly. And now it's <laughs> it's not a bad gig no, right? to go to trade school, come out as an electrician with very little debt. But it's uh, stigmatized. Yeah. yeah. It's still bifurcated that we put stupid kids into the trades and yep. smart kids do college prep. But now, increasingly, that smart college prep kid is folding sweaters at the gap, yeah. and they're 120 grand in debt. You know, you tell me who's smart. That's true. That's not a great setup. I love the point you made about creative. So I look at that as like your your word to define entrepreneurship so that it made sense for you. Yeah. Right? Like I, for me, the word, I, I just talked to David Green about this, which I, I, I actually, it's funny. I was just thinking a moment ago, you, you came in here late because I ran over with David Green. I don't know if you know this, but ironically, uh, when I was on the Bigger Pockets episode, episode or uh, Bigger Pockets podcast, my episode recording ran late, and the person they had to bump back well, was me. Was you keep doing it to me. <laughs> so if David Green and I are in the same room, yeah, you guys are gonna be late. Conspiring against me for years. But the word's defiant. Like that's the word that I rely. Like you, defiant. Defiant. Like you, for you, you're seeing you have an element of creativity, and you relate to that yeah. word as entrepreneurship, and you've got it. So okay, I can. I can justify or overcome the insecurity that I'm not an entrepreneur because I, 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 uh, I embody this one trait that I believe is part and parcel with entrepreneurship. Yes. Mine is defiance. Mine is looking at people, you know, and go, but David Osborne, people like that, where I'm, I'm defiant as fuck. So, so me and somebody like him, if I share that trait with him and he, to me, is a high performing entrepreneur, right. then I can actually justify an entrepreneur yeah. title. Right. And I think anybody who's prodigious, with in in deliver, delivering value. What's that word? No, Pro <laughs> prodigious means you produce a lot. Got it. Thank you. There are a lot. <laughs> I had no idea. There are a lot of people who are who don't think of themselves as creative. They're prodigious, but they're 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 producing a great deal of value of let's say something that's easily easily replicated or duplicated. Yeah. The the carpenter, the mason, the multifamily developer, or something like that. They would never identify themselves as a artsy, creative type, but they are creative because they're creating something that didn't exist prior to their input, their capital, their labor, whatever it is, and now it has value out in the real world. Um, another point from this book, Shop Class of Soulcraft, that I think is so key, um, 
and I know you were in corporate for a while, and this is probably going to resonate with you. He points out that a college degree used to be your track to autonomy. You mastered some subject, and that mastery and skill gave you the ability to go off and work on your own to develop something valuable. Um, and that the people who weren't smart like that, they were stuck doing factory work where they have no autonomy. Um, it's you know repetitive motions all day long. Um, and they, they just have to keep doing the same thing, no choices, et cetera, okay? He argues in his book that in the 20, 20th and 21st century, the new factory is the office. Mm. You don't have a great deal of autonomy. You're doing repetitive work that's in, uh, mind-numbing in many ways. And he, he adds this, the worst part of it is a good bit of your job is attempting to project either success or suitability to your superiors. Mm -hmm. You've got to convince them I'm doing a good job. Yeah. And so office politics, uh, relational manipulation, projection of success becomes a big part of what you worry about in an office job. Contrast that to, let's say, a mason who the work of his hands exists and it's immune from relational manipulation. Wow. Yeah. He sets up a foundation wall. His foreman says it's not plumb. He can say, bullshit, it's not plumb. I checked it three times. You go check it. Right. And now the product he's produced is immune to relational manipulation. Yeah. There is a great deal of freedom mm. in doing work where the product of your hands, you get to take your hands off of it. In real estate, people come in, they either like the apartment and they yeah. want it or they, or they like your flip. And there's something very ennobling about that in our, in our industry where you've done the work, you've put it in, and now the market is telling you, you just created something that's so valuable that I want to give my money for it. That's cool. Instead of, hey, the only way I'm going to be able to make money is I got to go grease up my boss yeah. to try to get him to like give me... That, that sucks as a life. It does. And there's a degree of defiance in me that didn't like that aspect of, you know, even in teaching, there's that kind of like office politics. I like that, man. And even you mentioned the creative part when you were talking about, oh, well, I'm sorry, you mentioned the corporate part. And earlier we we're talking about creativity or being creative as an entrepreneur. I, I, I think that's a big part of, I mean, I was 21 years in, a, in the same company and it started out, you know, 2000 with a lot of autonomy. Mm -hmm. It was like, just don't. Don't go outside of this. Right, this is legal. Right, right. This is ethics. But that's it. Don't violate those. Go do the rest. And then it became down to even at a high, even as a high level employee, even as a, as an executive, to at the end, just follow the process. They just follow this process. Yep. Don't don't get creative. Don't get cute. Follow the process. And yeah, there's an element of me that that enjoys you know taking something in and saying, oh, I get to figure out how this ends. Yeah. And it got taken away, so I couldn't be there anymore. Go ahead. Right. And then you got to learn the whole new PR lingo. Make sure you're up to date every year on that crap. Um, you know, forget it. Not me. Have fun. Um, so I'm at the point now where, you know, my portfolio throws off about uh, $20,000, $21,000 a month in net income. And that's uh, non-taxable. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, because of depreciation. It's all shielded. Um, I hired a property management uh, over the past six months and nice. I've been handing off the baton to them. Oh, so you're, you're becoming so getting more hundred percent of my time back. Yeah. That's incredible. And, um, yeah, I want to give uh, more value to guys who are already in the industry right now. Some things that were cheat codes or little, uh, things that helped me along. Um, one was, uh, using YNAB, which is a online budgeting, um, application. Mm. It stands for you need a budget. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. YNAB with the yeah. letter Y and yeah, A B. Exactly. Got it. Yep. Um, because I found out even when I was hiring a bookkeeper, my bookkeeper kept track of the past of my money. 
Okay, he kept track of where it went so that I could report accurately for tax uh, reporting. Mm -hmm. He was not great at the future of my income. So, you know, I have a couple LLCs and they have bank accounts. Let's say maybe one of them has $75,000 in it. I go to my bookkeeper. All right, I need a new ductless mini split for this apartment. Can I buy it? He's like, well, yeah, dude, you got $75,000. But you and I both know that's not my $75,000. Right, right. A good portion of that is earmarked for, let's say, uh, real estate tax escrows, mm -hmm. insurance escrows, utilities, CapEx. Yep. So... It, for an entrepreneur in our spot, it gets uncomfortable when you don't actually know how much, you know how much money that is in the bank account, but you don't know how much belongs to Jamie. You don't know how much you could take as an owner's distribution to take your wife on vacation or something like that. Yep. I got sick of that reality and wanted to know exactly how much money responsibly I could uh, take out yeah. without it, you know, tanking the uh, portfolio. Yeah. So YNAB is a really good job of... Um, it's, it gives you an app that inputs, it's a one-way street, so it inputs the, the data from your bank account. You can't, you can't accidentally or on purpose change anything in real life while you're operating in YNAB because it's importing all of the real financial data. Mm. But it allows you to sort of sort and collate into, let's call them uh, buckets uh, or drawers, sure. so that all of your money as it comes in isn't just sitting as a lump sum in a bank account. It's going into like, okay, here's the monthly allocation for my eventual real estate uh, um, tax bill or whatever. Right. right. Yeah. Yep. So for me, every month with the rents coming in, I was putting, okay, this is going to get pulled out almost immediately for the debt service. This has to accrue in this account for it. And it was really just based on one deposit account for that LLC. Yeah. I only needed in real life, I only needed one deposit account. But in my in this budgeting software, I'm able to see down to the penny, here's how much I'm putting towards CapEx, this, this. And then, then like profit first, here's how much is actual profit mm -hmm. that I can take, take away, put in my own pocket without stealing from my future needs. It's almost like overlaying a dashboard on the one account of a bunch of money. Exactly, right? 100%. It's not, it's not putting money in different accounts. It, it eliminates that complexity. Exactly. And it's like you, you almost take like one like like 3D glasses and put it over the 100%. account. 100%. see all these different and you, things. interesting. You know probably on, guys in our position, real estate entrepreneurs, who th they're just playing the, the bank balance game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when it goes over, they're on credit cards uh, or they, they don't know where their money's at. Sure. And to me, that's not good sleep. Yeah. You know, no, you, you're 100% that spot. You up. want to be able to keep track of it. Yep. That was a great tool for if you guys are in that spot, like I totally relate to it. That tool was awesome in helping me. One more tool I want to talk about real yeah. quick. And then we could, because I know we got to get going, got to get you wrapped up here. I apologize for making David Green made you late. It wasn't me. But one more tool I want to talk about when you left the W2, we were talking about it before. And that is a tool, I call it that, a set of tools or information around health insurance, because that is a big block for people when yes. they're saying, hey, well, yeah, I've got cash flow. It covers my expenses, but I, I need to budget in also for now that I'm paying my health benefits. 100%. And there's a lot of different things. Talk about health shares. I've talked about those or the exchange. But you were giving me some information about different ways of yep. sort of hacking, if you will. Yeah. Insurance. So the big thing is a lot of people are afraid to leave the W-2 because they're afraid of health insurance. You yeah. know, what if I retire? Then turns out one of my kids has cancer or I do or I break a leg, I'm in a car accident, now this financial freedom I've worked so hard for gets taken away by some random event. Yep. Um, or they look at, they price out COBRA for their family and they're like, crap, like $2,500 a month, I'm gonna need five doors, five great doors, just to cover our health insurance once yep. I leave my W-2. So a couple things for me. One, we backed into it having low 
W-2 income to start with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I progressively built my portfolio and my income. But even with that, when I looked at, okay, how do we, uh, the reason I say that is there was no huge W-2 income coming in when I retired from my wife in some corporate job or something like that. It was just our real estate income when I walked away finally from my job. That might be different from some people out there who um, are at either a different net worth level or a different income level. But the first thing we did was MetaShare, which is like a faith-based insurance, not insurance uh, um, thing that goes on. They have really low premiums. Um, Some hangups are, some of them are weird on pre-existing conditions. So you want to make sure that you, you investigate that fully. We were on that for maybe a year and a half or two years. Um, while we were on that, we started investigating the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare marketplace. I had thought that that was going to be more expensive sure. than this MediShare. Um, in actuality, Affordable Care Act is the friend of the entrepreneur um, because a lot of the pricing for it is based on your adjusted gross income. And me, as a real estate investor, um, a re- a, the reason a lot of my income is non-taxable is because the depreciative losses that I have to declare on my tax returns eclipse a lot of my real or cash flow income to the point where my adjusted gross income is very low. Yeah. Um, and when you when they calculate the premium that you owe for ACA, they base it on where you fall in adjusted gross income as a household. So I have four kids. We make the... Uh, kind of adjusted gross income where actually we have to beg to be allowed to do Affordable Care Act because they actually try to put us in like county housing, like, uh, yeah, like Medicaid almost. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. right. Which is inferior in terms of yep. uh, point of service. Yep. So, um, so that puts us in a tranche where we're not get we're not paying a lot in premiums. That's my wife and I are Affordable Care Act. Yeah, sure. Um, when I retired, uh, we went to the uh, the insurance company that we use for our homeowner's insurance because they had a, a health line. The guy sat down with us because we want to know, okay, how, you know, what exactly is it going to cost? After looking at our numbers, he's like, why don't you guys do CHIP for your kids, which is a children's health insurance program. I thought it was only for yeah. the poorest of the poor kids because right, right. I handed out the flyers when I was a teacher. So I said, that's for poor kids, man. I can't take that. He said, no, no, no. It's actually for every kid or any kid. The only mandate for CHIP is that they, they insure kids. So the, the premium payments are tiered based on your level of income. So you, know, you could be a multimillionaire and have your kids on chip. You're just going to be kicking a lot more uh, for premium payments. But when he ran the numbers on us, again, he used our tax return and the adjusted gross income. The premium that he came out with for our kids was Im- embarrassingly low, uh, pretty close to free. Unbelievable. And this is a program that has really low deductibles and really low copays. And for us, it was, you know, everything's in network for our kids. So that was something that, you know, had we not rolled up our sleeves, investigated the bureaucracy and everything, we had just assumed, well, it's going to be expensive for us as soon as I retire, and, and allowed that, that sort over our heads to keep me in a job that was no longer fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Um, it was worth a little investigation. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, we say in my GoPod, uh, answers are better than guesses, yeah. especially when they're free. That's true. So if you're listening to this and you're an entrepreneur, you're considering maybe you've got a W-2, you're considering what the jump out is like, I would strongly encourage you not to base it on guesses, superstition or whatever. Go pencil it out, sit down at a retail office that does CHIP or that does Affordable Care Act, figure out exactly what it's going to be. Just don't hit apply on the last page or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then start looking at 
the actual quantification of your financial freedom yeah. instead of just thinking it's not possible for you. Brilliant. I love it. That's a great tip. I, it's something I have to investigate. So you've shared that with me before, and then I got sidetracked with this move, and but I have to get get in and take a look. Yeah, at you're in. I mean, you're in a different spot where I'm not sure what network is going to look like for you. Uh, <laughs> we're we're so the health insurance will reimburse for international care. Um, the health share approved. That's what we have now. We have Zion Health. They approved care internationally for us. So got it. We're kind of there until we move back, and then we have to we have to make some decisions. That's I guess. worth a couple episodes where you go totally full granular. On you, I mean, without giving away your own medical information. Yeah. But the more granular, the more value, value, because everybody can agree in principle that what we're saying is good and valuable. 100%. 100%. But it's a little different when it's like, hey, go to this URL, yeah. do this. You'll either get rejected or you'll get accepted, sure. but at least you'll have an answer as to whether or not this step is going to work for you and your family. Yeah. yeah. People need granular advice. Yeah, I agree completely. So, so let's wrap with this. We're in Tahoe. Yes. You're at your first Go Abundance event, I believe. Yeah, first big one. I've been to chap uh, local chapter stuff, but this is the first... Uh, Give me the review so far. We're only to day two, but what do you think? How's it going? Uh, so I am, have led a fairly pedestrian life uh, prior to being involved in M1. Yeah, sure. And and then now Go Abundance. So these kind of adventures to me were just it was just not in the cards for somebody like myself. To to give you the detail, Jamie and I are sitting right outside the door. Here is a window looking out at gorgeous mountains, snow, a hot tub. The kind of stuff that was that was only on my vision board, you know, five, six, seven years ago, mm. that now, because of time freedom, because of means, and because of GoBundance, I'm able to do and and actually write off as a business expense because it's a, a business conference. It is. Yeah. But we get to, you know, enjoy this aspect of life together. And uh, so it's neat. It's given me a whole new perspective on stuff, man. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm glad you jumped in. I know we talked a bit about it. You were like, ah, you know, should I, should I not? You know, da. Yeah. I'm glad you did it. You know? Yeah. If you're on the fence about it, I just got to say, if you, you got to level up who you're around, um, even just through uh, good example, I lost 23 pounds uh, since October mm. because I have a GoPod that's keeping me accountable. I'm kidding. Um, it's super weird because I take a picture of my scale when I get on it in the morning. Is it a glass scale? It, it's it's not totally reflective. I, I've had I've made that mistake. Right. <laughs> but nude reflected. Right. Yeah. You don't want scale. that. But it's still weird because it's my bare feet yeah. on scale. So one of my GoBros, his wife, like picked up his phone, and he hasn't he hasn't figured out how to not have what WhatsApp import the WhatsApp photos into right his into actual role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's scrolling through it. She's like, "What the hell is this foot fetish on your on your phone?" He's like, that's uh, just it, don't, don't worry about that. That's, right. that's yeah, just yeah. rice. Like, that doesn't answer the question. Yeah. But GoBundance <laughs> awesome. is great for that kind of accountability. Sure. And I told him, dude, if I'm not under, I, this is what I said, if I'm not under 190 pounds by uh, Tahoe, mm. you guys can hit me in the crotch with a tennis racket. Real and? and and I was under. You of course I was under. Good for good for because you. I didn't want to get hit. <laughs> the crush with a tennis racket. Yeah. You need you need teeth on your goals. Go abundance gives it. They they cultivate a system where that's possible, where it's required, not just mm. possible. Right, right. And um it's one of those things where I'll I'll end with this. In life I've learned this over and over and over again. You think something's gonna be too hard for you. You you think maybe you're not gonna be successful at it. Sometimes you got to start the snowball rolling down the mountain and you just got to ski in front of it mm. and you got to trust that as long as you stay alive to the bottom, you know, you'll have a PR once you hit the bottom. Yeah. So jump in front of that snowball and get people who are in the snowball ready to 
you know, bite your ass if you're not skiing fast enough. You're a hell of a storyteller, my friend. <laughs> and then I get like to the that. bottom. I like that. I like that. Real quick, I, I just got to tell you this. I don't think I've told you this before, but you and I were at a conference together in Montreal, and you actually had a big piece of... Uh, you were a big piece of change in my life or a big agent of change in my life that you probably don't realize. But at that conference, I, I uh, signed the contract on a 16 unit, my first 16 unit property. Uh, I remember doing it on the phone, on the way, on a bus somewhere that we were going. I don't even remember where it was. And you're like, wait, you're doing that now? And you used a word that I never would have identified for myself. And you kept telling me that throughout that weekend, which was grit. Man, yes. you're gritty as hell. Gritty, gritty, gritty. Yeah. And I left there like, I'm gritty, <laughs> right? And it was, uh, it was a, a shift for me. That and some other things that, that happened in that weekend, but that word, and you in particular, I'll never forget, huh. that's, that statement to me of being gritty was a word I never would have defined myself as, so I have you to thank for that, brother. Well, terrific. Thanks for being gritty. Of course. <laughs> no problem. Uh, House Hacker's Guide for the Galaxy, or to the Galaxy, excuse me. Oh, yeah, I wrote a book, House oh, Hacker's Guide to the Galaxy. Available on Amazon? Yeah, it'll give you step-by-step. It's that granular advice on the step-by-step -step taking me from being, I mean, we were in debt when I was coming out of school. 2006, we got married to 2015 walking away from my job and then, you know, hitting millionaire status and now in GoBundance, multimillionaire. Um, it's great. I love it. I love it, man. Thanks for being here. I appreciate you dealing with this, all, all the, the delays and everything. Yeah, 100%. So good stuff. Thanks, bud. Cool. All right, man. Great job. <laughs> <laughs>